brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, all right, all right, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and when it comes to the ancient past, the origins of humanity, and all the weird stuff we have lying around the planet that still mystifies today's best and brightest, I have to think we were up to much more than basket weaving and drawing stick figures on caves way back when. We know man pulled himself back up from the ashes of at least one major cataclysm, but it's likely there were many. Who knows exactly how advanced we could have once been, but we certainly chalk up a lot of things we can't currently explain to aliens, and maybe we're giving away too much credit. What if abductions, pyramids, crop circles, flying saucers, megalithic sites, advanced engineered soil, ancient writings describing epic sky battles, the modern day flyovers disabling nuclear facilities, a laundry list of out of place artifacts, and even sightings of reptilians, greys, and cat people are not things we should so casually chalk up to galaxy hopping almond eyed aliens from a distant space rock but actually affects actions and evidence of a lost, ancient, highly advanced group of humans who have been living alongside us, leaving us largely on our own like we do to tribes all around the planet today. Well, that is the intriguing position of our guest, Jared Murphy, the author of a compelling new book entitled It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us, Discovering Our Lost History, that makes a very good case that just as humanity has chalked up a lot of unexplained phenomenon to the gods throughout time, we are making the same mistake in a lot of areas today. And because of our own amnesia, arrogance, and the deceptions of a nefarious elite who hide our true history and prop up false paradigms that suit the psychological condition they want their subjects in, we are missing the clues that reveal just how mind-blowing humanity's progress might have been in the pre-flood past, and maybe that lineage isn't completely gone. Well, let's do the damn thing. A fun one, if there ever was one. Here to make the case they're not from space. A free thinker, not a Kool-Aid drinker. Jared Murphy, my man, welcome to the higher side. Can I keep that intro for all of my interviews going forward? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a lot of hosts would love if you just handed that over to them. That was great. I really appreciate you having me on the show, but that kind of summed it up and nailed it. <laughs> well, thanks, man. Attention spans, they're short these days. You got to grab them. And thanks for being here. I really did enjoy the book. It was more convincing than I expected it to be. 
because a lot of people have made their minds up on these kinds of things, and now I'm not so sure. But <laughs> to be honest, when my main man, Olaf Phillips of Paranoia Publishing, brought me this one, I wasn't all that excited about it at first, because I like the big epic alien idea. But your position is really just as epic when considering the picture you paint of an advanced ancient world. And these humans, I guess, quote unquote, would be so radically advanced from us that if their chain of custody to the past wasn't broken, then the only real difference between them and aliens would be where they call home because we would be so diverged. But to kick this off, maybe you should be giving the people this overview instead of me. How do you like to introduce people to this possibility and why do you hate aliens so much? Oh, wow. I haven't been <laughs> accused of hating aliens yet. I, that's a prank caller. Prank caller. I'm messing with you. Yeah. So the idea originally, I wasn't thinking, hey, it's not aliens, it's us. The concept originally was that there's all these advances in genetic technology and about cell memory. And basically, I thought, okay, there's these paracas, these elongated skulled people and South America. And I thought, let's just look at maybe putting together some information or a novel or something more fictional for some fun reads. And the first thing I stumble across is that there's engineered soil called Terra Preta. And who cares about soil? I thought I was going to write a fictional book and I end up finding that there is an engineered soil all over the earth and the last thing I ever liked growing up, you know, I liked Indiana Jones. I wanted to find the temple with the golden monkey and do that sort of stuff. I didn't think that, hey, I have a background in construction. And let's think about the compression levels of the foundational structures of megalithic structures that we've taken no core samples of. And the fact that there's engineered soil that's the best growing soil, has electromagnetic properties for current travel. It can absolutely filter carbon dioxide heavy metals and fertilizers and everyone's been looking at it for 100 years and the identical soil there's different kinds of engineered soil and by engineered we mean biochars you mix it's not a matter of accidental forest fires and a bunch of dead dinos building up over a few thousand years or millions of years this is a soil that's a mixture like when you go to buy potting soil for your plants when you go to take care of a flower or something in your home or in a garden. This is soil that can be, from what they found, just in Brazil, 20 feet thick. So it's been being used for a long time. And it covers an area that the general estimates just in Brazil is basically areas the size of two Spains or at least all of Great Britain. And then the identical engineered soil so there's different signatures. They have different kinds, but the identical engineered soil. This is your big hole, house of card, general academia. This is what we think. There is the identical terra preta in northern Africa. It's in Australia and it's in Central America. And you have to explain how does Australia and North Africa and all of South America into Central America end up with a similar soil? So it sent me down a road that basically started with something that's very mundane and it's not as cool as finding, you know, a golden ankh or a, some sort of cool tomb that's what you would consider modern. And I'm talking something that's two or three or four or five thousand years old or like the mummies that were just discovered last week at Saqqara. First, it was 15 and then 
it's been a week and they've ramped up to 25 that they just found. And that's exciting. You know, let's find mummies and let's find these dynastic people, the Greeks, the Romans. And we've had this paradigm of 50,000 years ago, we were all in loincloths. So now here we are with engineered soil. And as I dived into it, learning about the properties of what the soil does, the number of people who can't explain it, the carbon dating for it, placing it at dates and times that even if you account for it in one continent or one area of Brazil, how do you explain it in Africa and Australia? And no matter what, you then get down this road where I end up compiling after almost four years the information that when you take everything together from giant megalithic buildings and their cymatic polygonal construction, these are large blocks, they have no mortar, and they are able to withstand earthquakes by muting the frequencies and waves of the earthquake and a lot of these buildings are a lot bigger taller and deeper and we're looking at the foundational structure and like i said i have a background in construction so we're talking about soil sifted and mixed in a way where it's not only good for growing and filtering carbon dioxide and heavy metals and fertilizers but a soil that has electromagnetic properties so how does that tie into these different pieces around the earth and then you add in something like the nazca lines not the big bugs and graffitis that later you know cultures placed on top of very straight unbending lines that are approximately some are over 25 kilometers long and they're in bolivia they're in jordan they're all over the world there's these long earth grids and circuits and when you start placing all the technologies together and in the time frames that they were being used and then you start saying, well, we've always seen aliens or there's these UFO sightings. And as you're piecing this all together, there's different things that hit me or, you know, you end up being like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is where this research is taking me. And when you have aliens as in plenty of normal, average, very not alien focused people saying, well, I'm an architect and I saw six flying saucers stop above me and six other friends and they did not move and they were 100 feet off the ground and I know what they looked like and I know what they were. And you have the United States military, which I think everybody knows at this point, coming out last summer saying, look, we want your help. We have a program that's over 70 years old. And yeah, we know there's aliens or UFOs. And yeah, if you're going to take a zero point turn and if you're a society, if this is not the first time we've done this, people go in for plastic surgery all the time. And we think, well, otherwise, other than fixing a broken nose or I want a part of my body to look a little better than another part, we don't think about the fact that we didn't need to wait till Elon Musk comes up with a brain chip or is executing an actual brain chip to think that the way we look at technology is not the way a society that deeply understood toroidal fields, magnetics, frequencies and waves, not just muting an earthquake on a single building, but dealing with whole metropolises with material sciences that might include vehicles. If you're at a zero point turn, do you want to be a tall human or at a zero point turn at Mach whatever, do you possibly want to be shorter, translucent with big onboard eyes that can deal with frequency and wave communication and programming directly to your onboard computer that looks more like organics to us. <laughs> and so there's some or the tip of the iceberg of a world that is there. And like you're saying, the book covers all of it. 
and what it means to us to have this unknown, unrecorded, massive history. And it's been blurred by so many different things. And where should we go from there? (laughs) Well, yes, you're making some good points. Although, you know, for air travel, I'm 6'1". It'd probably be easier if I was 5'2", but I don't know if I would alter my body for the occasions in which I am on an airplane. But I get what you're saying. And I heard you on Gramerica, I believe it was, and you were talking about a conversation you had with someone who's more plugged into indigenous communities. And they mentioned to you that they're well aware of the technology that they see in the modern world, but they refer to it as wrong tech. And I thought that was pretty interesting because we kind of apply our current picture of civilization and try to backcast it and say, well, where are the iPhones and all this stuff? But it just isn't that way. They might've been more aware of tech that would push humanity in the right direction rather than into this digital dystopia where we're going. Yeah, we do experiments like in one of the things I talk about in the book is some Harvard scientists came up with using DNA to store information and they put a 50,000 word book on DNA and they're up to on a gram of DNA, they can store now terabytes of information and essentially everything that's known to humankind I try to come up with better analogies on this one, but, you know, send in for better thoughts. The basic idea now is we have the capability of storing genetically all the information that we know of. We're talking how to build a car to how to make a computer to anything and everything that the human being knows could be stored in basically two elephants that by using RNA strands of DNA, they can store memory and That's just one example of abilities like synesthesia. So there's a various amounts. They affect all of your senses. And these are abilities where you might smell something, but instead of smelling it and thinking, well, I smell chocolate. But what you see in your mind is a number. Or when somebody tells you a number, you see a color. Or when you see a color, you hear a note of music. And the assumption is, hey, you know, we're only 10 to 14% conscious, but, you know, the theory of evolution says we only get something through a forced adaptation. So are we basically in safe mode? Are we basically like a computer that kind of broke down and it's running, but it's only doing basic functions? And so people with synesthesia, they say right now that the current population has about 20 to 24%. Either they know or they don't know that they have some of these abilities, but you can sense other people's touches. You could sense what another person is feeling could you imagine sitting down in a greco-roman amphitheater that shows by the way a foundational footprint that has cymatic qualities of canceling and muting earthquakes that's getting into the architecture but can you imagine sitting in an open maybe half moon amphitheater where you are able to sense feel touch taste everything that the actor is doing just as an idea So the idea of a cell phone is unnecessary when you're connected consciously and mentally and physically and through the earth and through plants. I mean, here's the big thing. You're an ancient high tech alien and they're looking at us just like we look at the 150 tribes we leave alone around the world and they go, how can we help these people? How do you get a chicken before an egg? It's real simple. You engineer a creature that lays eggs. There's no example of we do not have a complete fossil record. We do not have a complete paleoanthropological look at the world. We are discovering, this is something that a lot of people aren't aware of. We discover 5,000 
things, creatures, animals a year, 5,000. But they're not new. They're just things that we weren't aware of. And we were just able to identify a non-oxygen breathing entities that live in very hot environments in the earth, near volcanic lava and underwater. And we think of technology as this external thing that we have to have a device in our hand or eventually we're going to have a chip in our head. And we're starting to get the concept that technology can be out of the body and in the body and it connects organically. We're missing the step that it would be very easy for a group of people that have been here 80,000 or 50,000 years ago to have the same technology that would allow them to connect directly with earth plants, not in a crystal woo-woo, not that there's not a spiritual side. We are a spiritual, connected, loving creature. It's that we are not looking at nature and seeing that it is high technology, possibly. That a lot of what we're looking at is dormant, broken, de-energized earth machines, whether it we're talking and referring to the Great Pyramids or all the pyramids that it's more and more, there's enough evidence coming that they look more like energy machines and structures to that actual connection that we have from barefoot running or connecting physically to the earth. It is well known within standard academia that just getting your feet on the ground, even if it's concrete, there's an electron exchange. Well, there could have been a time where it was more organized. And so the idea that we are simply technologically empty if we are not within hands of a device that our human consciousness that that shared genetic past or memory where you get an idea the one that i love is people are always cleopatra or somebody famous in their past they're never build the crap farmer who deals with the zoo creatures from 300 years ago or a thousand years ago you know they're always somebody famous they're never like yeah i was a barley farmer you know it's the question of whether or not that in bringing up stored memory and RNA and manipulation and what we're learning to do right now, we've learned through experimentation that mothers can pass down, in this case, of course, violent, traumatic memories. We've been able to duplicate it with worms that we've been able to, what we call instincts, that we pass down the actual memory of an instant. So like when you and I, a lot of people you know, you run up the stairs from the basement. What is that? Is it just because we know that creepy, crawly things are in the basement? Or do we have millions or thousands of years of history that we can't consciously consider right now? But based on the size of the ruins, the technology involved, the sightings of what we're calling UFOs right now, is it possible that the people you see or the entities that you're identifying with are variations of the human race not because they're different not because they're from somewhere else but that they've never left the planet that in some capacity they survived through one or two or multiple cataclysms and or interactions that were not positive with each other so there might be various races that you identify and say well i've heard of a reptilian and i've seen a reptilian or i've seen a little person or i've seen a gray or you know people refer to these things where yes you saw something not shaped like a normal human but you're not actually sure 
is that really somebody who's an interdimensional space traveling alien who thinks Earth is the neatest planet in the universe because we eat and go to the bathroom and pretty much live pretty simply? So this is the greatest, funnest stop everywhere? This is it? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, those are good points. And I've always found it curious that today we have mammals as the dominant species with humans being the apex of that. But reptiles used to be the dominant life form, we're told. And maybe there was an apex reptilian humanoid that survived and Funny enough, we still have this cultural memory of an association between that and our elite, which would be, you know, the, the, these apex people who have survived. And the idea of crypto terrestrials was put out in a book by Mac Tonys before he died about a decade ago. And I always really liked that idea when the beans pick people up and say that they're from space. Why can't they be lying? When they point up, maybe the truth is really down and they live right here. The problem, though, is where do they live? Where would their society be? Where are these ships when they're parked? I mean, how do you answer those questions? Oh, those are some of the funnest and also the scary ones. Like One of my best examples, well, there's a few. One is Hyperion. It's a name given to a redwood that is... 357-ish plus feet tall. National Geographic did a story on it. You can see some climbers in it. They're little tiny dots. And the trees around Hyperion are over 100 feet tall, and they look like scrub bushes. We did not see or identify this ancient redwood until 2008. And it is ridiculous. If you want to Google it or search engine it, it is called Hyperion which is also the name of a pretty epic novel and series, but that's totally fiction. Hyperion is a good example because, yeah, there's loggers and there's forests where we don't get everywhere. There's plenty of abductions that direction and or mysterious stories about forests, but we don't have that many people, for instance, in Antarctica. We have lots of stories like maps, like there's high-technology ancient maps that show the coastline of Antarctica without any single bit of ice on it where it's been iced since the end of the last ice age at least that's what we think and yet we have found maps from the early 1500s that have the coastline meanwhile we have experimental science teams in antarctica and there's not that much to look at and everybody loves penguins and there's been lots of cool movies about penguins yet it took two years ago for a satellite image on the danger islands which is a chain it's kind of a peninsula off of antarctica where they found Adelie penguins, there was a super colony. They guessed between 1.3 and 1.7 million penguins. You can look at them right now. They look cute as hell. And it's just penguins. But how, even when you research penguins, do you miss a super colony of 1.5? Oh, yeah, that's just a million five penguins. <laughs> we just missed it. Yeah. And they're black and white. They're in tuxedos and they're on white snow. And we missed it. That's just two examples of living creatures. One's obviously one's a giant tree, but it really is a standout. And then you have these penguins, but then you have the constant reminders. Oh, hey, we know more about the universe around us than we do about what's at the bottom of our own oceans. Mm -hmm. And then I don't think they're that well hidden. So part of it is we could go down the rabbit hole of where are they hiding and where aren't they hiding besides on the ocean? I think... It's almost more interesting to point out also that they keep being seen. And is it intentional or is it not? 
which is the part where I played in the title because there's a lot to process of it's not aliens worse, it's us because, you know, there's tribes. We don't run out. There are tribes on this planet right now that are living like they have for tens of thousands of years. And some of their traditions include mutilation of the human body in a way where it's not okay. It is not okay to do what some of these tribes are doing. Yet we leave them alone because it is respectful to let these people have their traditions and they might be secretly living a more natural or great way. They still have a copy of the book that said there should be 20,000 woolly mammoth and 52 billion mosquitoes. So let's leave them alone because they're living the right way. And so we don't deal with that. And so you have these high technology ancient humans or i.e. UFOs and there's how many shows and how many people are like, well, there's a lot of UFO activity near Roswell or near Lake Titicaca in South America, or there's a lot of stuff happening between the Japanese, basically the Bermuda Triangle in Bermuda, and then there's a similar triangle around Okinawa, and there's these weird magnetic zones, so strange things happen, and there's these major UFO sites, but then there's also just too many people saying, you know, I saw this, I saw that. They keep disappearing in the water over here. We keep seeing this, we keep seeing that. And I know that there is a number, and Olaf Phillips has written on that, my publisher, about there are military UFOs. There are military projects that we are not aware of. Are they 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead of us? Maybe more, possibly. So we can account for some of it being various governments and organizations, private military tech projects, but there are too many things going on where you could actually probably make a solid list and say, look, these areas have activity where people who are much more advanced than us in some capacity are either intentionally or unintentionally exposing themselves, not caring, but where they disappear, we don't have solid communication or mapping yeah, we have the Heart Project, which is high energy wave frequency technology that possibly can penetrate water to the degree that we can map a lot more of what's under the water than we know of right now. But the reality is most of our technology is not capable of either going deep underwater or the extensive cave systems that for as many famous splunkers that are out there, there are cave systems that I have a friend whose dad just worked on a mountain range in Mexico a couple summers ago that is still not fully mapped. And they had a three-month project with some of the greatest Splunkers in the world. And they made base camps and explored miles under this one mountain range that is just one example. If you think about these large cavern locations around, whether it's Cambodia, Vietnam, or just open pit mining that the Grand Canyon looks more like it was open pit mining. We take for granted what possibly is a large open natural structure, and it could be an abandoned open mining pit. And so where they hide can include these spaces, but it would not be hard when we can't even identify trees, penguins, and really kind of get to the bottom of our own planet <laughs> and really know where it all is. It's yes. kind of open country. Yes, I am a big fan of hidden lands and weird anomalous islands that show up on old maps and not new maps. And you're right, we don't know much about the seafloor. And to my knowledge, we've only even drilled down eight miles into the earth, kilometers. I'm not sure, but a little less than eight miles. And that really isn't that much. But 
I'm a big fan of that inner earth and hollow earth material, and I'm very open to an advanced race being down there. There's seismic data that shows that the seismic waves, as they go through the earth, they stop and then they come out on another side, which indicates a giant cavity. If they are the survivors, maybe they have the technology to go in and out of the earth. The earth is our home. We tend to live inside of our homes, not on the roof, right? (laughs) But to me, that means the inside of the earth must be pretty nice for this advanced line of humans to just completely acquiesce and give us the surface, if that is the case. They can't be huddled up in dark caves while we have all the sunny beaches, right? Yeah, the question is whether or not even the spaces that they're occupying do they have ships and can they travel from a standpoint when you have a high control of frequencies and waves and the ability to cloak a vehicle we think in sci-fi terms that you physically don't see it but as far as our radars or the way that we operate with our understanding of magnetism and the way the atom works the reality is that it wouldn't be hard to either be on the surface of the planet and or under it and in a capacity your technology either looks like a natural formation or it could just be that it is cloaked. So that space and that comfort may come more with the freedom and the ability to do and communicate and be pretty much uninterrupted in your pursuits Hmm. with that technology. And one of the things that we're missing that I didn't point out about our geography, and I took a lot of time on this one, is our map of the world and what we see as coastlines, like Doggerland. You mentioned that earlier interview. And one of the things that I like to point out is that even Standard Academia says that basically the entire area from Scotland and Ireland and England all the way through France was one giant land. There were rivers, there was mountains, well, hilly mountain type things so we're talking about an area that even four thousand years ago five thousand years ago that wasn't the way we look at great britain the way we look at it today we're looking at an area that was a whole continent there's new zealandia so the whole area of new zealand and indonesia the areas we look at there like off of cuba one of the places i like to talk about is that cuban pyramid system that is right off the coast that is 2,300 feet deep. And you have to imagine what we do is we take, because, well, you and I, we're in the West, and so it's easy to go, how did everything go? Well, there was the Fertile Crescent, there was Greeks, there was Romans, and then everything fell apart, and ta-da, here we are through the Renaissance, and this is the modern world. Oh, and some things happened in Asia, you know, there were some things over there, you know, whatever, the Russians are doing some things, the Chinese and the Indians, you know, there's some things that happened over there. We have this very Western snapshot of everything, but no matter what, we look at the world map and we go, well, this is basically where all society was and is. And anything important is here except, well, we know that the Mediterranean was a little bit lower and and Alexandria is mainly underwater, but that's not the full story. The full story is there are massive amounts of continental land post-Younger Dryas, so post the big flood which we've all started to really call the Younger Dryas and got nailed down to about 12,600 years ago. We're talking about cities and land in areas that are deep underwater now. And we've done deep sea mining, so we have been able to hit down miles. I think that Russian project got 
significantly further. I know the oil companies have been pulling stuff up for years in the Arctic Circle. And this whole idea that when you look at the map of the world and say, well, you know, there's a few sunken cities, but when you start discussing that all of or most of Great Britain and that French area that is gone for the amount of the society that we're looking at and their buildings and materials that would be missing, it'd be like describing America in 8,000 years, but you only have for the West Coast is basically up Nevada, and then the East Coast would be from all of Ohio down to Florida. <laughs> That's not a lot, for sure. And you continually make those points in the book about famous buildings and famous events and how you can't extrapolate anything from the events just by looking at the the structures themselves. I mean, you might find the White House in 8,000 years, but it doesn't tell you anything about that real significance and what it was used for. And I do love the points you make about the underwater cities and ruins and structures that we have because you kind of say that archaeologists, they're looking on land and they find something like Gobekli Tepe and they say, well, this is the oldest thing we have. And it's like, well, we clearly know that's not true. You should be looking underwater. And there's this weird kind of cognitive dissonance that, well, those don't count when really they're clearly going to be the oldest and they should be the most studied. And when it comes to the structures that are on land, you point out in the book, any building that we have today, it goes through renovations and alterations and repairs over time. But we think of these megalithic sites just as is. When they could have been changed many times over, the cultures we attribute them to could have just been squatters who rebuilt on something that was interesting that they found. And many academics make conclusions about a site like Gobekli Tepe when the thing is only 5% excavated. Those are some pretty great points, man. I mean, what else would you say about these sites that we have in the world and how we should rethink them? Even though we've heard about them a bunch of times in the alternative community, a lot of these points you make in the book don't get made. Yeah, and I think that everybody needs to be a self-experimenter. Everybody needs to be involved. Our history is for all of us, and it's not just applicable as a historical record. Our history should be treated not as a search and, like, it's a big crash. It's a big search and, you know, recovery. It should be a search and rescue. It should be a conscious, because we're not talking just intellectually. We are talking about our human connections. We're talking about not just our physical connection to the planet, but there is a higher consciousness to these technologies, and we're awakening. There's a lot of different reactivations of our physical abilities and part of that about just tying it into these sites is that you have five percent of Gobekli Tepe dug up there are at least five other there's six known tepes you know and yeah it's a translation it just means a pot-bellied hill and Klaus Schmidt started digging 40 something years ago and we have five percent dug up and what's happening is is there's this new I'm just going to point it out quick before we talk about the other stuff, which is there's this template where alternative historians and archaeologists, the first thing they do is they pull out the same playbook. Everything is a temple. Everything is a fertility goddess. And apparently in between skin and deer, all people did was worship because that's today, right? Hmm. Uh, I mean, you got all the time in the world between your PlayStation and your Netflix and chill and Let's hit a temple and sacrifice something because that's the only reason anybody built anything ever. And the jump 
the hubris it takes to take 5% of a site and say, well, we're seeing the same things. You literally didn't know the site was there. You literally didn't know it was the oldest thing on the planet. And it's not. There are older things. And at the same time, let archaeologists fail. Please let them not find something. I like the way Michael Cremo puts it. If the facts don't fit the theories, throw away the facts. And that's the problem, is that jumping to the fact that would a nomadic people look at the night sky and follow the night sky because they see it? Yes, yes, they would. But would the original megalithic pillars that are finally done be from a society that had a completely different understanding of frequencies and waves and magnetism and genetics and engineering and living and communicating and those remnants where they adapted to another lower or nomadic survival culture or once abandoned where they readapted and that brings us to the pyramid i know it gets talked about all the time but here's something that's not ever really mentioned about the great pyramid on the giza plateau one is that the plateau is very big it's not just three pyramids a lot of people don't know that it's really the whole area and there's multiple cities and a lot of things that you go to Egypt for. It's not that the plateau is not a plateau on a hill. But the second thing is the Great Pyramid has geopolymer patches. Now that's kind of been brought up a little bit here and there. And the pyramid is not four-sided, it's eight-sided. When we start talking about a frequency wave, high technology, ancient culture, and we are talking about being an energy machine. It was discovered by a British Air Force pilot that the pyramids are actually, that that Great Pyramid, you can only see it as the sun sets, and you can go online and see pictures. It is eight-sided. But Dr. Joseph Davidovitz is the father of geopolymers. And if you guys, if everyone out there walks on concrete or has a home with a foundational wall, or if you've tiled, there are different kinds of geopolymers. And his original theory was, and he wrote a book about it, and this man is in charge of incredibly scientific papers and geopolymers, and not only did he invent them, but everything that has to do with modern construction is geopolymers. And the theory came about, and they tested it, that there are geopolymer patches. They thought maybe the way you could get out of building the pyramid in 28 years was to pour it because the joints are so tight but that's not what they found what they found was that this is a machine well whatever the pyramid was some points at different points on the structure it needed to be patched which was then backed up by a yale researcher and another egyptologist totally independent that the great pyramid shows geopolymer patching in ancient times I don't mean like mud brick. I don't mean like the Pyramid of Saqqara. We're talking about incredibly advanced geopolymer mix to reinforce a structural failure on the building. And that is very interesting because you think about, well, cultures have come in after there's been a great flood or possibly some other disaster and the dynastic Egyptians, they picked up, they had statues, they had imagery that could indicate to them this is what writing looks like. Well, we're going to do hieroglyphics. Well, it does mean what it means because we have the Rosetta Stone. But there are very well machine cut hieroglyphics. And there's also 
old statues and buildings and things that were there that were readapted for the dynastic purposes. But had they been there earlier and for other functions, we have to look that some of these, like the geopolymer patching on the Great Pyramid, they may have been from the time period that they were being used still for the functions that they once were made for. And specifically also in Egypt, a lot of times Saqqara, the step pyramid, and these mummies that were just found that everyone's pretty excited about, I think everybody should be, because they just found 25 mummies in Saqqara in a tomb in a well, Mm -hmm. or they're calling it a well. But what's interesting about Saqqara, the step pyramid, that it gets brought up that it's like two different builders built it. Everything in the interior area, and it goes over 90 feet deep, this main chamber area is made out of incredibly hard stone, really hard to work with. It's large, very high technology looking. But more importantly, they found tens of thousands, over 40,000, 50,000 vases of different sizes made out of different stones. And what's important about this, and this dates back to the great Flinders Petrie and a number of other the great Egyptologists back in the day, the reality is that these vases are unique in that they have machining. They are lathed. They aren't just made by somebody taking a giant block of stone and very carefully, slowly going in it. They were made with machine-quality lathing, so you have to shape the exterior of the vase, you have to shape the interior, and most importantly, they were translucent. And that's something that we're talking about quick. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. Wow, what did he just say? It's like, oh, you could see through the vase, but it was made out of stone. Oh, that's neat. That's interesting. That's a mystery. (laughs) And that's how we leave all the individual pieces. Yeah. But pull it all back together and look at some of the larger picture. Yeah, we need to focus on maritime archaeology, but it's dangerous. It's challenging. You can't maybe see your hand in front of your face. You can die if your oxygen levels aren't mixed correctly. There's a million things that, not to mention, get eaten by anything in the world's toilet we call the ocean. (laughs) And then how do you maintain a site when the ships on the surface of the ocean are getting just smacked and grabbed by every wave around? It's incredibly challenging to say, hey, look, let's focus underwater near this site off of Cuba because... We might as well be going to the moon if we're going to work at a site that's 2,300 feet deep and stay down there and find what we need to work on to keep looking at a different timeline and story that the world's telling us. And it's right back to what you said about people making, whether it's an alternative history or mainstream academia, the constant assumption of, well, in the paradigm we got, well, obviously we were trying to align this high technology structure to Orion's belt. Well, it's observable. It's in the night sky. Is it coincidental? I think it's less coincidental that the Great Pyramid's 160th-ish of a minute off of north by north by south by south. I think that's not coincidental. I think that's really hard to do. Right, right. But what about the star constellations that we can't see? What mattered in reference to communication And those are some of the things that in looking at maritime archaeology and actually treating our history as more of a search and rescue means that God bless all the work that's been done at Gobekli Tepe. 
but they're already building there was much ado i think before corona i don't know if you remember this but they were building new sidewalks for the visitor center on unarchaeologically researched space they've already started building a parking lot they're five percent dug up why aren't they a hundred percent dug up after 50 years and i can answer that but <laughs> the short is we need to support archaeologists in a way and not just archaeologists we need geologists people who understand stones and builders i understand construction structural engineering you don't build the way that they're describing like machu picchu with oh this is all giant cymatic polygonal construction and then they finished it with rubble and boulders <laughs> Yes, those are really all good points. And uh, I think you hit on something there that the new BC term before Corona, a thousand years in the future, maybe that's how we'll be describing BC. But I also wanted to ask you about out of place artifacts, things like the Baghdad battery, as you point out in the book, they actually found more than one, even though we only talk about it as if there was this one anomalous thing. Are these eroded pieces of what look like high technology? And I mean, they obviously seem to be, but are they as rare as we tend to think? I mean, I've also heard you talk about where they're found. Sometimes they're found at depths that are below things like mastodon bones. Yeah, like that aluminum piece that is driving people nuts because there was a piece of aluminum. I first saw it on Daily Mail and I'm like, okay, what is this? And it is a machined piece of aluminum that was found under a mastodon, which was laying undisturbed. It wasn't what we call an intrusive burial where, hey, we dug through a bunch of layers of the earth and well, that's how this perfectly anatomically correct human was found under a 5 million year old piece of slate. And this mastodon did not get placed on top of this piece of aluminum, nor did it slide under. They dig up what essentially is a piece of aluminum that at a minimum is existing 700 years before we create aluminum. And it's shaped. One of the buffs by standard academia is to say, well, this piece of aluminum was from a Messerschmitt. It was a World War II plane. And clearly it got jammed into the earth after it crashed. And just this one part under this mastodon. And it didn't move. So they have ways that it gets excused but i think that that out of place out of time artifact that's very interesting but like the baghdad batteries we have this digression we have this one of the things that i play around with in the book are i'm thinking out loud and also i'm following up and working on now is as technologies devolved they had different applications i think like textiles when cymatics came along when hans jenny kind of reintroduced in the 60s the idea of looking at frequencies and waves and the patterns they create with sand or salt on panels that you would create a frequency it vibrates a plate you get a picture and lo and behold the world known image for ohm you know consider the sound of the universe and something that many different cultures chant or you use in your yoga and in your meditations but the symbol for ohm matched the pattern of the actual vibrations hmm. of and that may have been translated into a picture forgotten that that's what it really looks like 
and you start adding up the amount of out of place, out of time artifacts with, again, also genetic things. It's just never looked at. It should be on the page every day. Like, hey, we need to go out and find every Paracas skull ever, and why? Well, the Paracas have these big elongated skulls, but there's also people with elongated skulls. Akhenaten, King Tut, maybe Nefertiti, and I say that because that very famous bust of her. You know, from what I can tell from the research, it looks like it may have been a plant. And that's too bad. But, you know, either way, there are elongated skulls found in Bulgaria, Eastern Europe, all over the world. We're not talking mimicking populations like the dynastic peoples where they take a board and they elongate a skull. We're talking people with a different suture line in the skull. Their neck goes in their spine and their head connect in a completely different location. Their vascular ends are completely different than ours, yet they're human, but they have these really big heads. And there's been some blood work done. There's been genetic testing as of last summer that was complete. And these Paracas that are in Peru near the Nazca lines are likely from Crimea and Asia or Eurasia, you know, from Europe, and how did they end up in Peru? And part of these out of place, out of time artifacts can't be limited to, well, whether it's the highly advanced vases with machine cutting, or it's these batteries, or it's the aluminum in Europe, or even in the Russians, there was a gold mining group that found in the 90s small nano gold parts. And these you can see still all over the internet. The researcher that worked on those died, and these were confirmed. This is gold nanostructures. They were in layers of soil. These were not military. They're at a minimum 20,000 years old, and now we're starting to cook with the time period that you would have this higher advanced pre-flood or younger driest culture that would also have the technology then for genetics and medical work that would be way beyond where we're at now. And so when you think out of place, out of time, how do we every day ignore or I know that you need to like get more funding. So it's good to speculate and it's good for all of us to have an open dialogue for Gobekli Tepe and to talk about, well, this symbol could be this, that or the other. But why isn't the dialogue on? We need to dig up more. And first and foremost, we need to put not a mystery label on out of place, out of time artifacts. They need to be the gold standard. Here's the front of what we know. And the theories that we've been trying to maintain by Victorian archaeologists that didn't want women to even vote. I mean, seriously, I'm not saying individually any of them, but if we held on to technology the way that we hold on to the original 150-year-old academic paradigm of the theory of human existence, we would all still have rotary phones, but with antennas on them. (laughs) Man, well... I guess just one more quick fun one before we wrap up and give your links and stuff. So the book is called It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us. Why would you say that it's worse for it to be us and not aliens? I don't think any of us as humankind today, like you said, we could drop a bunch of Nikes off in the jungle. But the idea that we are striving to be the most advanced that we've ever been so that our loved ones don't die of cancer, that we don't suffer that we no longer need to fight or why is everyone starving or worried about money i mean there's a lot of things to think that how could you develop anti-gravity technology and zero point turning ufo craft 
and genetic information and technology that is beyond ours that could help us in an instant. I felt that we were advanced enough that we deserve to hear this from our great ancestors. And it doesn't seem like they're willing to share. It doesn't seem obviously we are not neither of us. We as a general society are not in a position that we get to experience any of these benefits of these people. And so it is worse, I think, in the sense that our own brothers and sisters, our own actual prior relatives on this planet are not willing to share technology and or communicate directly with us. And it's easier to consider that it was an alien. It's easier to consider that, well, they're not really from here. They don't really care about us. So that's kind of where, isn't it worse maybe if it's us? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is a hard pill to swallow that we could be much better if we only applied ourselves and if Rockstar stopped making such compelling games. Yes. But <laughs> this is certainly a, a really fun idea overall. You make a lot of great points, digged up some great data, and we could obviously have both an ancient advanced civilization and occasional visitors from somewhere else. So I guess it could be a both and, but regardless of what's survived, it's so, so clear that our past had a higher society than the history books tell us about. If the fields of psi research, frequency technologies, healing devices, breath work, alchemy, etc. were truly taught to people and widespread, everything would be vastly different and far less limited. But I guess that brings us to the end of the road. Anything to tell them about getting the book, social media links, and what's coming next? Yeah, it is on Amazon. It's not Aliens Worse. It's us discovering our lost history. You can find it on Amazon. I am ever so quickly coming to Midway on recording the audiobook. So hopefully that will be available soon. And then I am on Not Aliens. You can find me on YouTube, but... Mostly it's shows like this, you know, yesterday was Fringe and it was Conflict Radio before that. And next week I'll be, I'm a regular on Night Dreams Talk Radio. So I do a combo of live and podcast. So that's currently where to find me just recently and coming up. And then, of course, this was great. I really appreciate you having me on and we should do this again. Yes. Cheers, man. Well, awesome. Great stuff. I had a lot of fun. Very unique perspectives here. And take care. Keep doing what you do. Thank you so much. The Power of Christ Compels You, people. Definitely a fun one today, I thought. Jared does make some good arguments. He knows his material well, and he wrote a good book. And really, the leaders in archaeology and some of these fields that are writing the narrative on ancient sites and cultures we know how off their paradigm is, and yet they still try to fit everything into that incorrect paradigm. The point Jared makes about how when you're looking at structures that are thousands of years old, humans definitely could have found some foundation from an earlier time and built more on top of it, that's a great point. We watch the people at the top of these fields make so many assumptions, and whether by accident or intentional deception, these things sort of just get assumed into our view of the past. But very few structures actually are just built and then remain unaltered. And this conversation has been had about Egypt in the sense that we know 
the more sophisticated stuff is underneath. But the implications of that are a pretty big deal and should be applied to other places and cultures more often. And the out-of-place artifacts are always interesting. I love when we have a guest who has that as part of their repertoire. I mean, what if they are ancient apports, like Grant Cameron suggested? The Antikythera device, is that how you say it? It could have been dropped in from another dimension to inspire man into building mechanical things. I really did like Grant's apport perspective, but just as likely, or maybe even more so, would be that we simply had a shockingly higher level of complexity than the story says. But for me, probably the biggest hurdle in accepting that the beings people experience are some part of that ancient advanced human lineage is that they wouldn't give us so much of the land on the earth. Sure, we let a few tribes live out in isolation because we're not doing anything with that space. The corporations are destroying other things. It's not a big deal to, in some isolated cases, say, okay, these people are protected, just stay away. But quote-unquote modern humans have so much of the surface world surveilled and inhabited, that is a lot to acquiesce if you are a more advanced, ancient survival lineage. I mean, maybe they are the breakaway civilization, but it does actually mean that these advanced humans either got off-planet that they've got some multidimensional capabilities that make them feel as if they don't need the surface world. Maybe they live in a Wakanda-type society, but even that would probably get stumbled upon when a jet slams into the invisible barrier. Or, of course, <laughs> you know, I like it, but maybe the interior of the Earth is a lot nicer and inhabitable than we know. It is fun to think about, and Jared brought a lot of good stuff to the table, there are many researchers who talk about ancient interplanetary war, nuclear battles between Earth and Mars. Mars has pyramids. I mean, figure that one out. But in the second hour with Jared, we got into some other wild stuff like humanity's suppressed superhuman abilities and what a society might look like if those were cultivated instead of suppressed. We know that some really disciplined people can do some fairly miraculous things. And if they can do it, so can we. We just don't cultivate it. And I thought that was really interesting. Like, what are the upper limits of all that? We talked about the mysterious spheres found all over the Earth, nanogeology, a little bit about suppression of history, and the shocking amount of missing originals that have been accepted into our official history narrative. You know, that's right up my alley. But the spheres were really interesting, mainly because he has these photos in the book. And I see so much weird stuff. I don't know if I've seen these before, but they're pretty crazy. That said, in higher side news, the Q&A with me and Gordon and Sally Fallon Morrell is now on the bonus content page for Plus members. It went really, really well. Talked to Sally for an hour or so, and me and Gordon did another hour. So thanks to everyone who joined in live and threw out their questions. Many of the questions that... I also had myself, so it worked out, and I definitely think she's on to something with this new book. Other than that, I'm just doing what I do the way I'll always do it. Stay in the course. Trying not to let 2020 affect my mood any more than it has, and I hope you're doing the same. Who knows when this will officially be over? 
Don't let it dominate your day-to-day life if you can help it. In fact, I kind of wonder if a so-called pandemic has any effect at all on the frequency of people being abducted. Are they staying away from us, or do they know something about disease that we don't know? (laughs) But I love you guys. Thanks for sticking with me. I hope you like some of the -the off-the-radar episodes and topics in these trying times. I'm going to try to keep a nice mix coming to you, but thanks to Jared for his time. Pick up It's Not Aliens Worse, It's Us from my buddies over at Paranoia Publishing if you're into this kind of thing. But that is going to be it for today. I've done my part. Your move, megalithic sight deceivers, ancient past perception managers, and advanced humans hiding behind the veil. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything. Nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spy agency Wish we were younger and free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy such a difference between us and the dead It's doubling your time